I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We are so excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, is a new sponsor to the show. 2020 was obviously very hard, but podcasting wasn't thanks to Zencaster. We had to keep recording our season, but now we had to do it remotely. I might say I'm confident in Photoshop all the time, but I am no audio engineer, and Zencaster has made our lives easier during a pretty stressful time. They provide a crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. And we love that it records separate audio and video tracks for our guests and us. Plus, it's super easy for guests to use. We just send them a link and we're ready to record. There's a secured cloud backup, so you never lose your recordings, thank God. And did we mention it's super easy to use and there is nothing to download? Go to zen.ai slash oldmillennialspod and get 30% off your first three months with a pro account. That's z-e-n dot a-i slash o-l-d-m-i-l-l-e-n-n-i-a-l-s-p-o-d and get 30% off your first three months of a pro account. Bye. Bye. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Bejin. And I am your other host, Margot Bupard. Well, Margot, I think before we get into it, I think it's time for a little vibe check. How are you doing? Oh, I don't know. Fine, I guess. I couldn't really tell you. (laughs) I guess more relaxed than burnt out now that I've come back from a vacation. But like, I don't know, man, just L-I-V-I-N and as always. That's that's good to hear. I mean, I think I'm feeling the same. It's May, you know. I was recently, well, today we're recording on Wednesday, May 18th, and a friend just informed me that uh, today is Marissa Cooper Day because, in fact, this is the day the episode of The O.C. aired where she died. R.I.P. 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 That was a perfect coincidence with our episode from last week. But yeah, I think other than that, you know, it's it's mid-May. Like, I think you and I were texting just like the amount of things that have happened 
And it's not even halfway. We, I, what did I say to you? I was four, we're 45% into, the, yeah. into 2022. I, there's still way too much stuff happening. So I'm just trying my best to continue to compartmentalize and carry on. <laughs> you know, I, I don't really know what else I'm supposed to be doing. Like, at least it's kind of warmer out and I'm really looking forward to further getting my patio together so I can have people over. I'm really excited about that. You know, I'm just trying to, I'm, <laughs> I'm not trying to be like, you know, numb to current events, but I am just trying to focus on myself so I don't lose my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, no, like what I... is, what is Mary say in therapy? Like you can only control yourself. You can't control what other people think. You can't control what other people are going to do. So, you know, that's why I'm going to like assemble a bookcase this weekend, you know, cause I don't have control. So I, yeah. what I can control is like possibly putting together this article bookcase. Like finally I was complaining with Allie from, uh, the SSR podcast about how bookcases are either ugly, expensive, but most likely both. And so I feel like it's a feat that I found one that was not that expensive and not one that I hate looking at. So I'm excited about that. It's the little uh, things because the big picture is terrifying, you know? <laughs> I I hear that. And I will definitely uh, look at articles for some ideas for furniture slash article. If you're listening, please hire us. <laughs> Yeah, no, we're about to have some free spawn space if you would like to come aboard. But also, Emily, just FYI article has a, this is not a plug, but wouldn't this be very natural if it was? They have a Memorial Day sale going on right now. So Ah. I would look into that if you're looking for anything in particular. And then also, I need to have you over to the back patio. Oh, wonderful. I love that. I need to have you over again. Um, I recently hung some hats on a wall. So that that was a victory for me. May have made another hole in drywall that's now covered by one of those hats, thank God. But, you know, details. Uh, (laughs) Women in STEM. Women in STEM, baby. Uh, Well, you know, article, if you're listening, give us a ring, give us an email. We're, We're always happy to, you know, do that. Sponsored Old Millennials content. Pod at Gmail, baby. That's, That's right. where you can reach us. That's where you can reach us. Um, let's take it back, though. Uh, let's take it back to the early 2000s. You're done with boy bands. You want to hear from bands who are going to sing songs where they're wearing their hearts on their sleeves. They're emotional. Or maybe you you want to listen to something a bit harder, a little bit more electronic, kind of some hip hop, you know. <laughs> You want to prove to everyone that you can listen to music that's not from Florida or the Central Valley, since that's where all the boy bands and new metal bands seem to be coming from at this time. (laughs) You want to be more cosmopolitan, more international, sophisticated. Margo, what are you going to download on Napster or Kaza to show the world you've evolved as a human? Um, truly anything that sounds like, good day, mate. Nope. long week and it's only Wednesday. Um, you like obviously a British band because what says I spent a summer abroad more than coming back with a Coldplay and or Gorillaz album. Or a fun hat, but yes. Or yeah, or a jaunty scarf or uh, a small <laughs> replica of the Eiffel Tower. But you know, whatever. Everybody has their thing. 
Everyone has their thing, and today we're gonna ba- we're gonna talk about those bands that made us cry or sing along or dance in the early two thousands. They mostly hailed from the UK, although Gorillaz is kind of tricky because they include collaborators from the US and Japan and other countries. Uh, we'll be talking about them, and we'll be talking about Coldplay. And this episode will probably get called Britpop 2.0, but I'm sure someone will come after us and be like, well, what about those mid-2000s bands like Arctic Monkeys and Baby Shambles and Franz Ferdinand and blah, blah, blah. And we're like, look, we can't be out here covering everything, everywhere, all at once to name the fantastic movie title. But what we can do is talk about these two bands because holy shit, the Wikipedia articles. <laughs> My friends... <laughs> Yeah, I feel like we have enough on our plates. And also, I really, you and I had this debate even just leading up to trying to figure out who we were going to include in this list. Because I don't agree with Arctic Monkeys being a part of Britpop at all. I just really, I feel like they came, they were of an indie rock piece with a lot of other bands. And I feel like there was just like a stretch of time where they, along with a couple of other bands that weren't necessarily always like British bands that like they were on like the festival circuit for ages. I feel like I could get Arctic Monkeys and Vampire Weekend and a couple and like TV on the radio and some other indie rock bands that were like huge, like Ratatat or whatever. They would all be on the same fucking bill. So I just, I feel like Gorillaz and Coldplay too are sort of like the best examples of like a modern Brit pop, like, Yes, of course. Like, they're not quite Oasis. Like, I'd say Coldplay is definitely, like, more of, like, a U2. And the gorillas are, I don't know, the monkeys. <laughs> like, I really couldn't even. I'm like, what is a comp for this? They're very unique. But because mm-hmm. of, you know, the Blur and Blur was part of, like, that Britpop wave. Um, I feel like these are, like, the best representatives. Because, like, also Coldplay, even though, I, I mean, I wrote this in my notes, even though they're technically a quote-unquote rock band they are soft pop rock if they're a day all right and i will Mm -hmm. truly fight anybody anytime any place we can knuckle up like i will die on this hill this is one of the hills that i'm like they're very poppy they're extremely mainstream and pop is essentially a shorthand for mainstream and even though they're more downbeat the fuck do you think adele is you know what i mean like let's so especially when the reason why it took so long even just to like get through any Coldplay like research like outside of the Wikipedia like reading stuff about them it's mm-hmm. mostly about like how insanely like successful they are worldwide like universal appeal so I kind of feel like you know they are not the Beatles obviously but they have that Beatles like quality in which everybody at some point like loved them and lost their mind myself included Same. um but as as the way my write-up goes, I kind of like start kind of like optimistic, like listening to Parachutes again. Like, yes, I remember why I love this band. I remember why I baffled a middle-aged man in a record store trying to describe the song Yellow, even though I didn't remember the words. So I just hummed it at him awkwardly. <laughs> and then thank fucking God it started playing in the middle of him going, I don't really know what you're talking about. Anyway, it starts out really optimistic. And then as it drags on, and I don't even get into... A, a bulk of their latter years but as it drags on I, my my taste for them turned and so i can kind of see why maybe to you it doesn't seem like Coldplay's that big but i was shocked to kind of like dis- rediscover how big they actually are no i mean i think it's they're one of those bands that you you brought up you too and that's i think the perfect 
comparison because U2 starts out as a band that's really loved by college radio stations. Um, Mm -hmm. That's really like, you know, falls into that alternative category. And then they release a huge, like, you know, they still have big albums leading up to the Joshua Tree, but like Joshua Tree is like the album. And, you know, well into the 90s, they were kind of seen as like more alternative, but big mainstream. Mm -hmm. And then 2000 plus, they hit this like, you know, can't go back. Everybody of every age knows a song by them. And like, I would say Coldplay, there's a point at which that happens as well, where like, I think it's Viva La Vida probably. But like, it just, I mean, it just goes on and on and like everyone knows who they are. My like, you know, 60 something year old parents know who Coldplay are and own a Coldplay album. So of course. Yeah. And so does like your dentist, probably. You know what probably. I mean? Probably. It is such like, especially as it goes on, it, there are so many like, well, there was my high school boyfriend's brother. We went to his wedding and their like first dance song was Fix You, which should have been Red Flag City. God. I mean, they did get divorced. Jesus God. <laughs> It's just like uh, if you dance to Shania Twain's You're Still the One, it's like, yes, you guys know the song is about like post cheating. You're still the one like we're all on that not, page together. Correct. Not not to mention what followed in Shania Twain's relationship with Mutt Lang following mm-hmm. that song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I, I was just sort of reminded by how generic their music kind of got at a certain point like in the mid 2000s like early mid 2000s anyway so yeah they have a long and storied history and truly between we were going to do Craig David and David Gray two men I still confused to this day even though their sound is very different but I can't help myself but we had to cut them for time because it's it's truly too too long I had like 10 pages of notes initially that's like That's, I don't know, an hour and a half long show, just me talking and nobody wants that, myself included. I had nine and it was like, where, where do we go from here? (laughs) Seriously. Especially gorillas, we'll get into it, but there's just so much alternate universe. It's like, how deep can you go? Because it's just, it's, it's its own thing. It's its own universe. It's everything. Like. Yeah, there, there was a point at which we all had, to, we both had to just be like, okay, there's a stopping point. If I turn another stone, it's not going to go well. It's going to be four more pages. So where, who should go first? Where should we start? I think you can go first um, since I t- introed and, uh, and I'll go into girls because they, I think both bands start around the same time and kind of see their first taste of success around the same time. That sounds about right. But as we get into these dates that I have written down, it might you might tell me differently. But Coldplay, according to their extremely extensive wiki, is a rock band, but I respectfully disagree. They're quote unquote rock in the same way that the killers could be perceived as rock, but you would be gravely mistaken. They are pop rock. They are not Rage Against the Machine, but it's okay to be soft boys mates. Like, just embrace it. Any hoodle. Coldplay formed in London in 1996 when Chris, former Mr. Paltrow, Martin on the keys and vocals, Johnny, no H. Buckland on the guitar, Guy, because every British band needs a man named Guy in it, Barryman on bass, and Will, Willie Wills, champion on the drums, along with Phil Harvey as their creative director, which, I don't know, that gave me pause. Like, who the fuck do you guys think you are, Lady Gaga? You do not need a creative director here. (laughs) But anyway, Chris and Johnny, no H., 
first met during orientation week at uni because that's what y'all call it, right? I watched some of normal people. Some of their freshmen like to spend their first year drinking too much and making out with too many randoms, but Chris and Johnny spent their first year of college plotting out their future collab, a band called Pectorals with a Z. No. They started, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, were you guys called pectorals because y'all had like a lack of collective muscle between the two of you? I don't really know. One can only assume. I'm going to go with my theory. They started to write songs together in 1997 and they would practice every single night, which I'm sure their dorm floor fucking loved these two mates. Am I right? Oh, God. <laughs> and around this time, they met Tim Rice Oxley, who they wanted to add to their band as their keyboardist, but he was already in the band Keen. And turn them down. No! Which, Keen, I feel like they're also, maybe they're, I don't know. Would you also call, qualify them as pop rock? Like, I was listening to Somewhere Only We Know again today, and that song is still very good. I mean, it's, I think it's pop rock. Uh, I think, like, Keen is, like, what, it's kind of, like, almost Coldplay, if you will, right? Like, it's, like, like they're they, so interchangeable, like, not interchangeable, because yes. I think Keen's a little bit, they've got a little bit more of an edge, or maybe they didn't go quite as mainstream as Coldplay, like, as time went on, they always kind of remained keen <laughs> One hit, yeah, kind of a one-two-hit wonder. Yeah, they had that album with the giant cartoon wave on it that I was, like, obsessed with in 2006. I don't remember what it was called, but clearly I was going through it. Anyway, both of these bands have cited this particular moment, uh, Tim turning down the position in Coldplay, as uh, a pivotal moment, like, when they both formed their own bands and deciding to make them quartets, which I found very interesting because, like like you said, their paths were very uh, in sync, at least for these first couple of early years. Anyway, as the year went on, they eventually got... They eventually dropped the name Pectorals when Guy and Will joined the band. And in 1998, they went by the name Starfish briefly because they had their first gig at the Laurel Tree. And it was only a few days after Will had officially joined the band and they panicked and named themselves Starfish. But they eventually settled on the name Coldplay a few weeks after their first gig when it was suggested by their friend Tim Crompton, which is an extremely British name, who had been using it for his own group that I assume had broken up. So like the name was just up for grabs. And Crompton had taken the name from a book of poems called Child's Reflection colon cold space play. So it was like two words. So they they mushed them together and made cold play. In May of 1998, they released their first EP, Safety Independently, financed by their alleged creative director, Phil, for £1,500, which afforded them 500 copies, which they mostly gave away to record labels and radio stations. After not breaking in with either, good old Phil was like, Oi, why don't you lads play a gig at Dingwalls? That's exactly how it went. Look, it's like you guys were there and you guys should be really grateful that this archival footage is available to us. If, if Unsolved Mysteries is ever looking for reenactment actors, let, you know, for a reboot, I'm putting you top of the short list. And, you know, I think I've told you this story before, but they used my childhood home for an episode of Unsolved Mysteries once, like in one of the flashback <laughs> scenes where like the crime is being committed. <laughs> Because I had to stay at a friend's house because it's like, oh, yeah, I don't think she should like, I don't know, it must have been like six or seven. They're like, I don't think she should see all like this fake blood. Like, it'd be confusing. <laughs> Just Robert Stack knocking on your door. Yeah, I was not there for any of it. I mean, I remember them like loading in like lights and shit and them like moving stuff around. But I, I didn't see any of it other than that. Um. Anyway, so... 
Phil suggests the gig at Dingwalls, and wouldn't you know it, they would meet their future manager who was in the crowd that night. Subsequently, they signed a short-lived contract with Fierce Panda Records and released their debut single, Brothers and Sisters, in April of 99. And because all this was happening while they were still in uni, they waited until they finished their final exams before they signed a five-album deal with Parlophone and went into the studio... Yeah, and went into the studio to record their debut album. But before they even released Parachutes, which would be their debut, they played Glastonbury on the strength of their EP, The Blue Room. But as recording sessions dragged on for Parachutes, the more tumultuous it got. It got so bad that Will was quick, quick bleh. It got so bad that Will was briefly kicked out of the band, which led Chris to go on a guilt-fueled drinking binge before the two of them worked out their differences and Will returned to the band. After that, these fucking nerds decided to make a pack similar to packs made by U2 and R.E.M., two bands I do not fucking care for, uh, that this would be a democracy, not a Chris Market, not a Chris Martinocracy, and any band member who used hard drugs would be fired. So their debut album, Parachutes, was recorded between September of 99 and May of 2000 and released in July of 2000 in the UK and November of 2000 in the US. While they were recording, they were also on the Carling Tour, which showcases up-and-coming acts. In March of 2000, ahead of the album's release, they got their first Top 40 single in the UK with Shiver, and their second, and their second single, Yellow, hit the Top 5, also on the UK charts. Both singles would later go on to be released as an EP together, and that would later make its way onto the U.S. college and alternative radio stations, fueling their across-the-pond appeal, but more on that later. A month before Parachutes was released in the U.K., Coldplay headlines Glastonbury for the first time, and when Parachutes was released in the U.K. in July, it hit number one and was later nominated for a Mercury Music Prize as well as a Brit Award for Best British Group and Best British Album. After their success in Europe... They turned their attention to the U.S. and planned a club tour for winter of 2001. Parachutes was slow to match the success they had gotten in Europe, but eventually it would go on to reach double platinum status, which is 2 million copies. Hi, I was one of them. And they were nominated for Best Alternative (laughs) Album at the 2002 Grammys. So we are now ascending to the top of Coldplay Mountain. So what do you do after you have a really successful debut album? You rush out the sophomore one, duh. Coldplay began recording A Rush of Blood to the Head in September 2001. Nothing nothing remarkable happened that month at all. And re-teamed with Ken Nelson, who produced Parachutes. (laughs) Everything in London was booked up, so they found studio space in Liverpool, where they also had recorded some of Parachutes. And their first song that they recorded that would make the cut onto the album was In My Place, which would later be their lead single. They would go on to write more than 20 songs, sometimes actively workshopping them on tour, uh, as was the case for In My Place and Animals. A Rush of Blood to the Head was released in August of 2002, and in addition to In My Place, they released other popular singles, Clocks and The Scientist, that was used in so many fucking TV and movie trailers for years. To support their new album, they toured from June of 2002 to September of 2003, spanning five continents, including co-headlining festival dates at Glastonbury and recording their first quote-unquote live DVD CD in Sydney. At the 2003 Brit Awards, Coldplay received awards for Best British Group, Best British Album, and in August of 2003, they played The Scientist uh, at the MTV Video Music Awards and won three awards later that night. By December of that year, readers of Rolling Stone magazine chose Coldplay as the best artist and best band of the year. Rush of Blood to the Head won a Grammy for Best Alternative Music Album, and in 2004, Coldplay earned Record of the Year for Clocks. Which, like, I always get kind of confused how that works, but I guess, like, the single had such a long run that it got nominated for the following year. 
Yeah, there's like the cutoff period of like yeah. when a single's release. I think it's like November or something. So if it's hmm. just right after that, um, it's like an, it's a year later. I mean, whatever. It's the Grammys. They make up their own fucking rules. <laughs> and now we're in the section called Now for the Albums Only the True Heads Know About Slash Care About. After they spent most of 2004 recovering from an insane schedule and also, quite frankly, oversaturation, they returned to the scene with X and Y in 2005. At first, I was like, I don't remember this fucking album at all. And then I was reminded, this is the album that has the most fucking annoying singles. Fix mm-hmm. You and mm-hmm. Speed of Fucking Sound. Yep. 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 X and, and Y, is- though, would go on to be the best-selling album of 2005 with 8.3 million copies sold I mean, worldwide. Beja owns a copy. Like, he bought it at Costco. Like, you know, I like I said, it, everyone had it. I completely, I mean, I must have just blocked this out in 2005. It was the number one album on charts across 20 countries. Although X and Y was critically well-received for the most part, it was decidedly less enthusiastic praise than the previous two albums. They began getting more U2 comparisons, and it kind of became clear that they'd locked into a successful formula for their songs, since most of their critiques were around how they, quote-unquote, didn't reinvent the wheel this time, so to speak. You've got to assume also at this point, there must be a lot of Coldplay knockoffs floating around, and maybe some of them are actually doing it better than Coldplay. Anyway, they kicked off the Twisted Logic tour in June 2005, and it would go through March of 2007. Mm. It it included dates like Coachella, Isle Isle of Wight, their beloved Glastonbury, and Austin City Limits. Their soft pop rock reign continued in 2008 with Viva La Vida or Death and All of His Friends. They see this album as the completion of their trilogy and the starting of a new chapter. I personally don't see it that way slash don't really agree, but live your truth, boys. (laughs) For this album, they got Brian Eno to produce, which explains the different sound. And in the middle of recording, they finished up their insanely long Twisted Logic tour in Latin America. Quote unquote, inspired by their experience of that leg of the tour, they decided they wanted to reflect that culture in their music as four extremely white pasty guys from the UK. Colonizing runs deep. And they spent the rest of the year working on that sound with Eno. Chris decided that he wanted to tone down his falsetto and up the distorted guitar riffs and bluesy undertones. Their first single, Violet Hill, was released a week early on their website and eventually would enter the top 40 on the U.S. charts within its first official release week. The title track, Viva La Vida, was released exclusively on iTunes. It became the band's first number one on both the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and the U.K. official charts, which was a first for a British band in the 21st century. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay. 
Coldplay performed the song live for the first time at the 2008 MTV Movie Awards on the 1st of June, and Viva La Vida became iTunes' best-selling song of 2008, and the album itself would also be the best-selling album of the year. It earned a Grammy nomination for Best Rock Album and their first Album of the Year nomination, as well as this did not come from the Grammys. It's a totally separate entity. Um, they also won the world's best selling act of 2008. Like they were truly on fire. Like I don't know what sun and moon and star placements were in their chart this year, but 2008 was objectively Coldplay's year. They kicked off their tour in, two th- in June of 2008 with a free concert at the Brixton Academy in London. This was followed two days later by a 45-minute performance that was broadcast live on BBC. During this tour, they released another EP in November of 2008, and their live album, Left Right, Left Right, Left Right, was released in May of 2009 and was given away at the remaining concert dates of their Viva La Vida tour, and it was also released for free to download on their website. In October of 2009, Coldplay won Song of the Year for Viva La Vida at the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, or the ASCAP Awards in London. In December of 2009, Rolling Stone readers voted the group the fourth best artist of the 2000s. Now, do do they let up after this? No. They have five more studio albums, and I'm not going to get into that. But to preview, (laughs) the most recent one on the track listings, it's mostly emojis. So these dudes really need to get out of the game. They've been in it too long. You know what I mean? But as we wrap up now, you know, Coldplay, let's get into a little bit of their legacy briefly, because it is they are huge. I, as we were saying, they are the most successful band of the 21st century and one of the best selling music acts of all time. And according to Fuse, they're also the sixth most awarded group in history. They're also the sixth highest grossing tour of all time, three of the 50 highest selling albums ever in the UK, most number ones in their country without ever missing the top, most nominations and wins for a band at the Brit Awards. And they became the first British group to debut number one at the on the Billboard charts and on the UK charts at the same time, which I'd mentioned earlier. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame included Russia Blood to the Head on their 200 definitive albums lists. And the single Yellow is part of their Songs That Shaped Rock and Roll exhibition. But you cannot get that popular and with that much world-renowned without having a few haters. And as such, it's nice to remember and reflect Coldplay's early days of parachutes and a rush of blood to the head because their status is definitely very polarizing in the same ways that, like, if they're a British Dave Matthews band or a British Hootie and the Blowfish, like, you either are a diehard stan at this point or they get on your nerves. But either way, Coldplay still records music. They're still going. Last I heard, they had a song with BTS. So, like, they're trying hard to stay relevant with the youths. And, you know, they're sort of like the Nick Cage of bands. Like, they just keep going. We should admire their work ethic at this point instead of criticize their music. So, I will stop there. I have a few personal anecdotes. (laughs) All right. So, let's get into it. One, A Rush of Blood to the Head was one of my favorite albums in high school. I used to play that in my car all the time. Um, it is still a mo- an album that I'll return to despite I wouldn't call myself a Coldplay fan these days. Not And again, like to your point, it's not because they suck. It's like just, you know, they're just not my my kind of music anymore. Like I, I, uh, it's just whatever. Um, but I love that album so, so much. And then in regards to X and Y, because you all know I sang in acapella groups throughout my life. One at one point, Fix You was the fucking song every group decided to do. 
everybody did a version of Fix You. They would sing it if there was like something tragic had happened. People would sing Fix You. I'm pretty sure Glee did something with that. Like it was everywhere. But I have to say the funniest thing that I've ever seen is when I was still doing competitive karaoke, I had a friend who performed that song at karaoke while assembling Ikea furniture. Wow. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, that's, those are my Coldplay stories. I was supposed to go see them in concert in 2008 during that like Viva La Vida tour and you know, it didn't work happen. And since then I'm kind of like, I don't think I'd, you know, go out of my way to see them, but how about you? Well, the story I told earlier about how I, uh, in, I don't know, 2001, I approached a disgruntled record store employee and had to describe the Coldplay album that I was trying to find because I could not find it and I was getting very frustrated. And um, I mean, oh, well, I got that album. I loved it. I, I played Parachutes like all the time. Mm-hmm. I was like obsessed mm-hmm. with that album. I think that's the one that kind of holds a lot of space for me in terms of like uh, something that I really um, was very into. And I'll never forget in the sh- how I, this is such like main character energy, but I... I timed a cry like pretty perfectly with like shivers. Uh, I I had gotten like rejected from a dance by a boy I thought was cute in middle school and like took it really hard. And so I made sure to like hold in all of my tears. So I got home so I could like pull down the shades, lay in my bed, turn on that album and cry very dramatically. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's and then obviously the fix you first dance like that was like, oh, that was a lot. So those are my two. Those are my three Coldplay experiences. And I was I really did also like Rush of Blood to, to the head. But I think that I, you know, 2005, by the time that happened, like I was on a completely different genre of music and like Coldplay wasn't even registering for me. So, yeah, even though I was gifted Viva La Vida at some point and I think I probably listened to it at least once or twice but like I think I definitely gave it away in a move or something oh yeah I think I bought it on iTunes I don't remember but yeah it is one of those like I'm not going out of my way to revisit Coldplay I'll put it that way um but like to your point we should not criticize them because they are laughing their way to the bank uh yeah they are Big rich, like very, <laughs> very, very rich bitch. Like uh, that's also what I put together. I was like, these guys don't even need to be doing this anymore. They have so much yeah. money. Chris and Gwyneth could afford to consciously uncouple because they are both doing just fine. Yeah. <laughs> so at this point, we're going to go into gorillas, which is while they were around the same time, uh, kind of their rise and all that, um, very different. In fact, I don't even know if you'd call it a band. It's like a virtual band, but we'll get into that. So they're, they're a predominantly British band that was formed in 1998 by David Alburn and artist Jamie Hewlett. Um, David Alburn, of course, is the front man for Blur, very much a vocal, a focal point of the first iteration of Britpop and Jamie Hewlett, is best known for co-creating the comic book Tank Girl, who was basically the prototype for the Margot Robbie Harley Quinn. I don't make the rules. Come after me, comic book nerds. Damon Alburn is the only consistent musician in the group with a number of guest collaborators. So Alburn and Hewlett meet early in the early 90s because uh, his band member in Blur, Graham Coxon, 
who asked Hewlett um, to interview Blur for Deadline magazine, not that deadline, the British comics magazine of the late 80s and early 90s. Um, Albert and Hewlett initially didn't like each other and things were weird later when Hewlett began dating Coxon's ex-girlfriend. But after he broke up with that girlfriend and Albert broke up with Justine Frischman from Elastica, very famous Britpop breakup, um, they became roommates or excuse me, flatmates. The idea for the band came from Albert and Hewlett's watching MTV Hewlett said, quote, if you watch MTV for too long, it's a bit like hell. There's nothing of substance there. So we got this idea for a virtual band, something that would be a comment on that. And Alburn followed that this was the beginning of a sort of boy band explosion, which, you know, checks out. And it just felt so manufactured. And we were like, well, let's make a manufactured band, but make it kind of interesting. And according to this Wired article I read, Alburn and Hewlett wrote a one page manifesto describing what that band would entail. Oh, they boy. Orig- oh, yeah. I don't really. I mean, like manifesto is such a different connotation. So it's like, wow, yeah. I'm I'm I don't know what's about to be read. Uh, luckily for us, they have since lost that piece of paper. <laughs> um, the band originally identified themselves as Gorilla. And the first song they recorded was Ghost Train, which was later released as a B-side on their single Rock the House. Um, Their visual style is thought to have evolved from the 16s, a rejected comic strip that Hewlett conceived with his Tank Girl co-creator, Alan Martin. And the influences for the animation for for Gorillaz is definitely rooted in anime, comic books, a little 70s Hanna-Barbera. There's just a lot there that when you're like watching those videos, you're like, oh, I see it. Um, It also coincides really nicely with like Cartoon Network, because a lot of those cartoons will have very similar animation styles. And there will even be a crossover at one point, which we'll get into. Gorillas are an inch or is an interesting concept because they're an animated band, and animated bands are not new things, obviously. Thanks to Hanna Barbera and Archie Comics, we have plenty of them. Uh, the Archie's Sugar Sugar was a big hit in the 60s. Later, we had Josie and the Pussycats. And I did some heavy Googling for my research to remember some of the better-known animated bands. So a few shout-outs here to the Chipmunks and the Chipettes, uh, Mystic Spiral from Daria, The Beats from Doug, Gem and the Holograms. There were multiple on The Simpsons, including the B-Sharps and the Party Posse. And I'm sure I've left out some pretty crucial ones. So apologize, apologies to those fictional bands. But we could have a whole episode on fictional bands in general. And I actually think that would be a really fascinating episode. Um, What sets girls apart from those other animated bands is the length of their lifespan as a band and the fact that they're not tied to a TV show, comic, or movie. Rather, those things kind of coexist alongside the band releasing albums. The main members of the group are as follows. And I try to keep their descriptions as small as possible because there are just articles upon articles that give you hella backstory on each member because that's how wild this universe is. They have full-fledged biographies, birth dates, everything. Um, So 2D, who's the vocals and keyboards, whose singing voice is obviously Damon Albarn, and he is currently uh, voiced when he's in his speaking voice. um, He's currently voiced by Kevin Bishop, who was Jim Hawkins in Muppet Treasure Island. I freaked out when I learned this during research. Um, He's loosely based on Chris Gentry from the band Menswear and a mutual friend of Jamie Hewlett and Damon Albarn named Stuart Lowbridge, who's worked as the stage engineer for Albarn since the early days of his career in Blur. 
you have Murdoch Nichols on bass guitar, whose speaking voice is actor and comedian Phil Cornwell, and he's based on Keith Richards, Victor Frankenstein, and Creeper from Scooby-Doo. In the late 2010s, Murdoch was incarcerated, which meant he was not a part of the sixth album, The Now Now, and he was temporarily replaced by Ace from the Powerpuff Girls at the time. So you may remember this guy as the leader of the Gang Green Gang, like the guy, he's like, hey, I got a New York accent. They're all like, they all have green um, faces. And in this one episode, Buttercup has like a huge crush on him, the first appearance. But anyway, there was like a weird crossover with Powerpuff Girls there. Um, Murdoch has since been released from prison and returned to the band in September 2018. And good God, it is so weird to talk about these cartoon characters like they are real people. But here we are. We have Noodle, who is on guitar, keyboards, and vocals, and she's been voiced by several people. Um, she's been voiced by Japanese-English actress Haruka Kuroda, a singer-songwriter Miho Hattori of the trip-hop group Chibomato, and Japanese-English actress Haruka Abe. And she was originally uh, created as a adolescent white girl. Her name was Paula Cracker. <laughs> But Damon Albert noted that the character was too similar to all the characters that Hewlett was known for drawing. So he recommended doing something different. So they went with a 10 year old Japanese girl. And in fact, I look at looked at Noodle's birth date and she was born in 1990. So she and my sister are the same age. And rounding out the group, you have Russell Hobbs on drums, and his spoken voice is supplied by Remy Kabaka Jr., who joined Gorilla as an official uh, as an official member in on percussion in 2016 and gets credits on future things. Russell was originally conceptualized by uh, Hewlett and Alburn in 1998 as like a fictional representation of hip hop components of Gorillas that embodied like their collaborations well, with all the rappers over the years. He was originally based on Ice Cube, who is Del the Funky Hopo Sapien's cousin. And Del, as a reminder, raps on the verses for Clint Eastwood and Rock the House on their self-titled debut as Del the Ghost Rapper, who in this story, because there has to be a backstory for fucking everything with gorillas, supposedly has possessed Russell and his fictional backstory of being in, of Russell being possessed by the spirits of dead musicians is what originally inspired the usage of collaborators and guests on gorillas albums. And that is that. Um, so gorillas really exist in this fictional universe of music videos, interviews, comics, shorts, other appearances here and there. They apparently live at Kong Studios, which is said to be high on a mountain in Essex, northeast of London, except this makes no sense because there are no mountains in Essex. And in terms of how they perform live, it's been done in a variety of ways throughout the years, such as hiding the touring band from the audience view in the early years of the project, projecting animated band members on stage via computer graphics, and then traditional live touring featuring a visible band. When you saw them live, Marco, how was that staged? It was floating screen heads sort of like arranged um, in like a weird like staggered V. Mm. I mean, mm. they're at Coachella, too, so I don't really know. It's I think when you play festivals, there isn't a ton of control that you have over your stage setup. But to say that it was disappointing and not very engaging is to say the absolute least. So, yeah, it sort of felt very disconnected. Like it really just sort of felt there was no sort of like live aspect to it. So it felt very like it, you guys could just be playing a CD for all I know. Yeah, that's fair. I think this upcoming tour, they're talking about there being like more guests. So I wonder if they will. I mean, they've done that in the past, but 
I'll be interested to see what that looks like um, in this new uh, tour that's coming up. Uh, but more mm-hmm. on that later. When Girls re- releases an album, it's um, more than just an album. It essentially creates a whole new universe. So they have a website for the album. They'll have social media accounts. They'll have shorts. They'll have comics. It's a very, like, ex- it's an experience. Uh, the first of those, their self-titled, was released on March 26, 2001, and spawned four singles. Clint Eastwood, 19-2000, Rock the House, and Tomorrow Comes Today. The album, in addition to being produced by Gorillaz, was produced by Dan the Automator. Um, there's going to be a lot of Bay Area shout-outs, so Dan the Automator and Del the Funky Homo Sabian. Um, the album featured additional collaborations with Ibrahim Ferrer of Buena Vista Social Club, Mio Hattori of Chibomato, as I mentioned earlier, she was Noodles, and Tina Weymouth of Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club, which will be kind of the beginning of Gorillaz always kind of doing these great collaborations. Uh, so Del the Funky Homo Sapien was not originally slated to collaborate on Rock the House and Clint Eastwood, but by the time that he came on the project, it was actually, the album was almost finished. Um, and Phi Life Cypher had recorded verses for Clint Eastwood, but when Dell finished making Deltron 3030 with Dan the Automator, he asked, uh, the pre- Dan the Automator asked if he could stay in the studio a little longer to record new verses for the Gorilla songs. And then for the purposes of music videos and the girl's storyline, Dell performed as this Dell the ghost rapper who was said to be, like I said earlier, a spirit that's hiding from death within Russell Hobbs. And Dell would later say in an interview that because of the success of Clint Eastwood, he actually wrote his rap for the song using the book, How to Write a Hit Song, a book that he bought with a coupon his mom gave him. And when the song went platinum, he gave the plaque for that uh for the platinum status to his mom. And uh, apparently Dell, the character is one of Russell's friends that was gunned down in a drive-by shooting. And then the ghost will go on to possess Russell, which happens a few times. He gets possessed by various rappers. Um, This is like, again, this is a very difficult (laughs) band to cover because it's like more than a band. It's like this whole universe. It's like very detailed. Uh, Just like, Total example. Like, what else are these people doing with their lives? I don't know. Um, this album was obviously very well received. It was on the like best of list of every uh, publication in 2001, and would have a very successful follow up, Demon Days, which began production after Alburn finished up recording Think Tank, uh, his album with Blur. The duo of um, Alburn and Hewlett wanted to prove that this wasn't a gimmick, believing releasing a second album would solidify that. At that time, Hewlett had been working on a potential Gorillaz movie script, and that idea was shelved, but the themes from that script were woven into this album, such as being driven by ego and the concept of, like, Endless Night. Additionally, inspiration came from Alburn's trip to China with his partner and kid and coming across an unknown, really unseen part of China with dead trees and dust bowls. He, like, has said in interviews, it was kind of like thinking, you know, thousands of years ago there had been things here, and now there weren't, and that will be, like, where we live today. And getting very philosophical. But the album's main producer is actually Danger Mouse, who Alburn reached out to after hearing the Black album and really loving the production on that. And also featured guest collaborators De La Soul, MF Doom, RIP, Booty Brown, Roots Manuva, and Sean Ryder. And it was released in May of 2005, spawning four singles, Feel Good Inc., Dare, Dirty Harry, and Kids With Guns slash El Manana. Feel Good Inc. deserves a special shout out given the recent death of the beloved iPod, R.I.P., 
and because it was featured in one of the iconic bright color background commercials with a silhouette dancing with their iPod. Feel Good Inc., the lead single from Demon Days, won the Best Pop Collaboration with Vocals Grammy and was nominated for Best British Album at the 2006 Brit Awards but lost to Coldplay's X and Y. The third album, Plastic Beach, was released in 2010 and was a result of an unfinished film project called Carousel. The film was actually a proposed anthology film consisting of 15 loosely connected animated and live action shorts paired to music, with each short representing a different stage of life from birth until death, all taking place on a hundred mile long Victorian pier. And like, again, I could not make this stuff up. Um, It was to be accompanied by a soundtrack that would be performed in concert by a live band. So it was this whole kind of art installation. And the recording sessions for Carousel took place from June 20, 2008 to November 2009 before it was eventually scrapped and became Plastic Beach. It was produced primarily by Damon Alburn and features guest appearances by Snoop Dogg, Gruff Riss, De La Soul, Bobby Womack, Most Def, Lou Reed, Marky Smith, Bashi, Kano, and Lil Dragon. And the themes really center around environmentalism, um, so much so that um, Damon Alburn had written so many songs for this and has continued to write songs about this theme that in October of 2020, he said he could potentially put a sequel album together for Plastic Beach, um, saying that this is, you know, still obviously an issue with environmentalism. And he would like to have an album called Clean Beach. um, And because at the moment, it's still Plastic Beach their fourth album, The Fall. And I, you know, this is where I have to start summarizing things because there's just so much. The Fall was uh, released in 2010 and was recorded on the road during the Escape to Plastic Beach tour and uh, was released later that year after the tour. Um, All these songs are recorded on Albert's iPad and collaborators include Bobby Womack, Mick Jones, and Paul Simonon of The Clash. Tensions had started to arise in the group as Hewlett's role took a backseat to Alburn's collaborations. And in April 2012, Alburn told The Guardian that he and Hewlett had fallen out and that future gorilla projects were, quote, unlikely. And Hewlett would later say in an interview in 2017 that Damon, quote, Damon had had half the clash on stage and Bobby Womack and Mostaf and De La Soul and fucking Hypnotic Brass Ensemble and Bashi and everyone else. It was the greatest band ever and the screen on stage behind them seemed to get smaller and smaller every day. I'd say, quote, how we got a new screen and the tour manager was like, nope, it's the same screen. He felt like he was being, his role was being diminished. Uh, but I mean, come on, you have these insane collaborators. What do you expect? Eventually, it seems that they reconciled and would later share in interviews that they intended to pick up the Gorillaz project again one day. So come to mid-2010s, uh, Remy Kabaka Jr., who's the voice of Russell, will become a music producer for the band. In 2015, Remy Kabaka Jr., who is the voice of Russell, became a music producer for the band after and um, after being the voice of Russell for many years and then was credited as a uh, alongside Alburn and Hewlett in the official 2019 documentary Gorillaz, Reject False Icons. Uh, The band's fifth album, Humans, was released after a seven-year hiatus on 20th of April 2017, and their sixth album, The Now Now, featured stripped-down production, greater musical focus on Damon Alburn, and then in 2020, they released Song Machine, which was like a web-based series with 11 episodes that had standalone singles and music videos. They had guests for each episode and then followed up with that with an album from that featured the music from that called Song Machine Season 1, Strange Times. Um, and the most recent announcement is that they are going to be reuniting for a tour this year. 
and uh, they are releasing an album called The Static Channel. And that is what I have around the gorillas, except for the band has sold over 25 million records worldwide. They are cited by Guinness as the world's most successful virtual band. They've won Grammy Award, two MTV VMAs, an NME Award, and three MTV Europe Music Awards. They've been nominated for 11 Brit Awards and won Best British Group at the 2018 Brit Awards. And that's it for the gorillas. I mean, there's just so much there I had to cut down. Yeah, we both had to do a lot of editing this week. Um, any final thoughts about Coldplay or gorillas? You know, I don't have them. <laughs> Well, thanks everyone for listening to our podcast. If you like what you've heard, you can join our old millennial cinematic universe on Patreon for $5 a month. We understand that inflation and uh, life are very real right now in terms of, you know, things costing more than they used to. And so if you can't support us financially, it would be great if you could do so by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Really, any kind of support that way helps us and our visibility. Um, you can also follow us on social. We have an Instagram and a Facebook at the Old Millennials Pod. And individually, you can follow us. I am at Emily A. Bashan on Twitter. And I'm at Marg, she wrote. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.